0: Oh, was the occasion, Madge? We've redecorated. Very nice. With these hands, you've nothing to celebrate. Oh, I know, Madge. It's dishwashing. And you're not using parmollet. It's mild on hands while you do dishes. You're soaking in it. Indeed. Relax. Parmollet takes care of your hands and your dishes.
1: And the new, richer, thicker formula washes more dishes than ever before. While still leaving hands soft and cared for.
0: For you, Madge. What we're we celebrating? My hands and sparkling dishes. I'll drink to that.
1: <laughs> Born in the United Kingdom, Rabina Beard wanted to be a ballerina. And after migrating with her parents to Sydney in 1949, she continued training in the Chiquetti method. But it is a varied life that has contributed to many art forms and roles. Rabina Beard has graced Australian stages and screens for several decades. She is familiar to generations of Australians as Madge the manicurist in the iconic Palmolive commercials in which she uttered the familiar catchphrase you're soaking in it. She has carved an extensive career as a performer, creative and teacher. She can now add author to the list with the recent publication of her autobiography My Life, You're Soaking In It. Rabina provides us with a first-hand account of the entertainment industry in Australia from early jobs working as a television weather girl, a score of shows with J.C. Williamson's and at the Phillip Street Theatre. She has filled the role of resident director and served appointments as a teacher with NASDA and the Australian Ballet School. At 83, she is vibrant, engaging, and an endless source of laughter and fascination, achieving the many of her dreams and missing out on others. She describes opportunities and moments rife in her rich life and rewarding career.
0: I I mean, I was watching the the movie the other day with the real people, not with the cartoons, and they do fly beautifully and they all fly in line and it's just beautiful Think, but we couldn't have done that and it was taking too long and we didn't have any money, so we just didn't do it.
1: Well, that's the thing, isn't it? An actor believes what they're doing. Exactly. Theatre is an illusion.
0: Uh, Total suspension of disbelief. I love that. Uh, Because um, uh, my children, uh, my beautiful son, he believed in Santa Claus till he was 10. But I didn't think he did. But he was just um, hedging the bets, (laughs) just in case.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the Easter Bunny and... uh,
0: Oh, and you heard about the Tooth Fairy, didn't you?
1: Oh, what's happened to the Tooth Fairy? No
0: coins. Nobody's got any coins. They don't know what to do about it.
1: Surely inflation. The Tooth Fairy could hand out a $5 Yeah, but there are no... Or...
0: Yeah, The $5 note, but there's no... <laughs> you can't put it in the glass, in the water, and have it disappear, water, and, you know... All that magic. That That's terrible. That's really terrible. Yeah. But, you know, something else will take its place, I suppose. It will.
1: Now, Rabina, you have contributed to the Performing Arts in Australia in a variety of roles, but if we could talk about, first of all, a role that probably has brought you the most fame, and that (laughs) is Madge the Manicurist.
0: That's right, You're soaking in it. Uh, Yes, I did that. Uh, That's the title of my book, My Life, You're Soaking in It, because that took 20 years out of my life between 1968 and 1988.
1: How did the gig come about? You just uh, were sent off by the agent to a, a commercial yeah. casting? Yeah. just come
0: back from Canada and uh, John Cover, my agent, Central Casting, beautiful, beautiful man, um, said, oh, look, they want you to go and do an audition for uh, commercials. I said, John, I'm a proper professional perf- performer. I don't do commercials. He said, yes, but they're paying $15. Oh, I said, OK, well, I will go. I probably won't, you know try but I will go because I need the money because in 1968 $15 was like maybe $75 $80 now, even more probably so I went there and I'd just come back from 18 months 16 months in Canada and we were out at our transit in French's Forest and in the waiting room were all my friends from Phillips Street with all the laughing girls, you know it was going to be a funny commercial we had a marvellous time talking and chatting and yelling, we were going in and coming out, going in and coming out uh, Barbara Winden came out very upset oh she said I won't get it I won't get it what's the matter she said well I couldn't get my tongue around the words I said I kept saying olive and I know I won't get it so we said don't worry and then I was one of the last and I went in and I didn't really want it so I just had yeah. a lovely time I was totally relaxed we were laughing they were laughing uh, and uh, you know and then I said thank you very much and I went home and the next day, the next day, John rang me up. He said, you know that commercial? I said, yes. Did you get the $15? He said, no, you got it. I said, what? Oh, but I don't do commercials. <laughs> but then I had a big think about it. And then I think John might have said that Sir, Sir Lawrence Olivier had just done a commercial for Kodak cameras. And if it was okay for Sir Laurence Olivier would be okay for Romina.
1: (laughs) (laughs) What was the character brief? Do you remember? What What were they looking for? I haven't got a clue. didn't know? Oh, yes,
0: yes. She was quite common and cheeky. And she had to talk like that. Um, And then about four or five years later, they said, do you mind if we um, upmarket her a bit? I said, I've been waiting for that. (laughs) I said, if I'd gone into a, a salon and someone had spoken to me like Madge, I would have walked out. Anyway, she got very quite sophisticated and she changed her hair and she got this uh, she went to a whole series of different coloured uniforms blue she was mostly and then she went into pink and she had this pink velvet bow tie and that was uh, the cause of so many um, retakes because it kept (laughs) slipping to one side and it wasn't constant you know anyway
1: it was obviously a hugely successful campaign for Palmolive so they kept extending it I mean Yeah,
0: I never signed signed for more than one year. Every year it came up and I'd say to John and my husband, they won't do it again. But they kept doing it again until they didn't. And um, the first year we did three commercials and they were two and three minute ads. They had a beginning, a middle and a tag at the end. And then the next year we did three and then after that two, 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 two. two. And we kept going on (coughs) and everybody thought... That was the same ad all the time. Because the format was the same. But the script and the joke was changed all the time. So you didn't get sick of it. You just well, I wonder what this one's about, you know, and you'd wait for the tag at the end. And they were quite cute. They yeah. really were. I've got all twenty eight or twenty nine of them in the cupboard.
1: So what happened, to Imagine the End? That they just new new people uh, in Palm Olive or the advertising actually, agency?
0: Sachi and Sachi bought out George Patterson's which was the advertising agency and um, Sachi and Sachi also had Lever Brothers so they had to give all that dishwashing and um, washing up stuff to another um, agency agency called Foot Sore and Bleeding Foot Cone and Belding (laughs) and um, they decided that they wouldn't go with Madge so Because I think everybody was getting dishwashers. It was about the time when, uh, although dishwashing has never gone out of practice, I still dishwash it. You've got a dishwasher, you use that all the time, but you do have to wash things by hand. And it was a great product. It still is a good product. And um, anyway, they said, no, we're going to let you go. So they... um, they gave me a lovely farewell with Patterson's Foot Garden Building and uh, um, Colgate Palmolive uh, in Macquarie Street in the American Club, and uh, they were all talking and so could, "I said, could I say a few words?" "Yes, of course." And one day when I was, I um, oh, said such a lot about Madge. She'll have to read the book. Um, I've read the book. Oh well, Madge <laughs> had the. Uh, Account executive and the client come to her house and wash up in a thimbleful full of palm olive dishwashing liquid because you had to say, you weren't allowed to tell uh, uh, fibs on in an advertisement, you had to be able to prove what you were saying. I don't think that's so now, but it was then uh, because of this little old lady who complained that there were no lemons in the lemon fab. <laughs> and so I, I studied to be, uh, I did three days at Revlon to be a manicist so that I was truthfully doing it on television. Anyway, these guys came in and we washed up. So I stood up at the farewell and said, look, uh, what is my favourite story about the, this gentleman? They may have been in the room, but I don't know because it was so long. Um, uh, these gentlemen came and they were in their advertising executive uniforms of grey suit, pink shirt and a dark grey tie. And they, we washed up, we washed up and then we signed affidavits to say that we'd washed so many plates, so many knives and forks, so many cups of, and signed it. And, uh, and they were all a little bit disturbed because they were all in their current uniforms in um, navy blue pinstripe shirts, white shirts and red ties. And they were all there and I, I just had a bit of a chuckle. Now you've used
1: Madge's catchphrase. You're soaking in it uh, for the name of your recently published autobiography.
0: That's right. Is it uh,
1: uh, is it tough raking over a life to sort of uh, reform your thoughts and get it all down on paper?
0: Ah, uh, no, wasn't tough for me. I just sat at the computer and was writing my early personal life. You know, from my uh, childhood and coming to Australia and being a a migrant and everything. I started to write that for my children so that they would know about what happened. And I sat down after work at night and I sat in front of the computer. I'd learned typing at school, so I was typing away, typing away, typing away. And then um, my uh, husband would say, Rob? I said, yes. Four o'clock in the morning, would you come to bed? Oh God. And I couldn't stop. Whatever was going on in my head, poured out of my head into my fingers and then onto the computer. And I just couldn't stop. And I I think it took about 10 years to to write. And I just didn't finish it because I didn't know how to finish it. And then when my husband died, I thought, well, now I have to finish it. So I did because that, that it had a lot. Of, well, Clive was part of my life, a half of my life, perhaps more than half of my life for so long. And um, the life that I have now, it's just equally as interesting, but... Um, not nearly as interesting as the original <laughs> part of life. So that's what's happened. And uh, th- the reason that I, I wanted to self-publish it is because it's so diverse and so many different things. And, and um, I just, I actually, did I want to write it all down so that I knew that I'd done. And the good thing about it now is that um, if I'm, Going to descend into dementia, even a little bit. I could just read my book and I won't forget anything. Or <laughs> well, somebody
1: could read it to you.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh yes.
1: <laughs> so you're born in Twickenham in England,
0: yeah, 1938. Yeah. Uh, and uh, uh, um, my brother was two years younger than older than me. I was born in Twickenham. We lived in this beautiful little village called Shepperton, which is where the film studios were. And when I was two and Chris was four, my father went to war, and didn't come back for five years. And so we were um, war babies. No, we weren't war babies. We were born before the war. So um, mum, from being a beautiful young wife and mother, became superwoman. You know, she had to, as all the women did in England. You know, could you
1: fully comprehend as a kid that? Dad was away for no that reason. Because I was two, yeah.
0: And what it what was the reality was the reality. I didn't even. As I got older, now Dad was writing us letters and sending us stories because he loved writing. And awful red sweets from Cairo. <laughs> they were horrible, but he knew we didn't have any sweets or lollies and things. So, um, and I I thought I knew I I knew I had to space leave a space in my heart for my daddy because he was going to come home and when he did um, that was an amazing thing Um, we were at the station we knew that the war was over and dad was coming home but nobody told you anything you know about time so mum and I were at the station she just bought me an ice cream which is probably the third or fourth ice cream i would ever had in my life and I was loving it and the train came in, and Mum said, wouldn't it be funny if your dad was on that train? So we walked across the road, and um, we looked at him, and there's all these men getting out of the out of the train, and my mother said, oh, my God, there he is. Now, she hadn't seen him for five years, and he hadn't seen her for five years. Two totally different people standing on the train and I'm looking at this ice cream. And then I never in my whole life with either of them asked them what they thought felt or how they what they said and, and I think that was the worst worst was that's why I wrote my book so that my kids wouldn't ever have to feel that they didn't find anything out because you don't you don't ask him other things that like that you just don't because you're busy getting on with your own life so my my premise now is talk to your parents find out all you can about them because when they're gone they can't tell you and so anyway dad mum had to make it up for the book you know what they said to each other and my brother came running up I don't know how he knew because we didn't have a phone or anything but he realised he came running up saluted his dad because his dad was in his uniform and then we went home you know he had his duffel bag and that's all but uh, then uh, post-war England wasn't what my father expected it to be and four years later he brought us here in
1: 1949 yeah come to
0: Australia. and he he was in the Middle East and in the same place as the Tobruk Rats and he was a British uh, captain in the army, in the British army. So they got together and he loved these blokes. They, um, My dad was a lovely humanitarian. He loved people, kids, everything and he found everything really interesting and he was not boring. So he talked a lot to these men and uh, they said, you know, you will have to come to Australia and see it. And he said, sure I will, sure I will. And so after four years, we're still on rationing. We still couldn't buy clothes or, you know, he he had a good job as a a writer for programs for the great Earls Court um, Stadium. So we went to boxing matches and um, concerts and things. and then he just didn't like it he said this isn't the country i fought for
1: Well, it was a country rebuilding itself as yeah, well i guess exactly. yeah exactly
0: but he 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 went he went to war for king country and family in that order he went for the king and we would we all felt the same way he was quite right in thinking that and you know we were on the end uh, but by this time i was 9 t- and chris was 11 and Mum had no problem leaving England, but I didn't think Dad would really want to, but he gave it a go. We got in the boat and came here. And best thing that ever happened in the entire world, you know.
1: Can you recall your, your feelings when you first sailed into Australia? Was, yeah. Was the light different? Was the No, was the
0: well, we got off the boat in Fremantle because Dad wanted right. us to set foot in Australia. And we went into Perth, and there's a little arcade in Perth that's still there
1: after the, the tudor arcade was, yeah. yeah yeah that's right I remember
0: right. that i was 10 on the boat and christopher was excuse me 12 when we arrived so we went into this and my mother was stunned she was standing in front of the butcher shop and there's all this meat you know laid out. well even in england now <clears throat> you don't see it laid out you say could i have some lamb chops and the man goes away and gets them and brings them back but there's all this meat. And mum oh. And Christopher and I were in the baker shop next door looking at the petit fours the all the creams and cakes and things. Dad's standing back saying, oh, I did the right thing. I did the right thing. <laughs> then we went back on the boat. The next day, my brother and I got up and went back to Perth by ourselves, 12 and then. Mum and Dad, we didn't tell Mum and Dad we were going. They didn't know where we were. And, and so we loved it. We loved Australia straight away. And I, because I, dancing, I had it. The address of a new dancing teacher to go to in Sydney,
1: because you'd studied the Chiquetti method yeah. in in England. Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, I learnt from Miss Kate Walker in Weybridge, and she was the most beautiful lady in the world. And the, when I saw her, I was totally struck that that's what I wanted to do. And I never had any trouble with deciding what I wanted to do with my life because my whole life I wanted to be a dancer. And that's a, ba- all a ballerina? or Well, yes, when I was, my, my grandfather said, what do you want to be when you grow up? I said, oh, I want to be a ballerina, dye my hair black and wear it in a bun. Because Dame Margot Fontaine was the only person <laughs> that I'd ever seen. And I had friends were giving me presents uh, of books about ballet. I really was, you know, um, mad about it. But what's not to be mad about dancing in beautiful dresses, you know, and lovely things like that. But actually learning dancing was exactly what was right for me because it was um, fascinatingly interesting and you had to pay attention and you had to do what the teacher said and all these other little girls, they were all doing it too. And it is a marvellous... Uh, a marvellous training for a human being, dancing, classical ballet, and no any dancing, really, as long as it's... Well, if you knew what you want to do, then you just go about doing it. And if you like it, well, that's even better. I loved it. I couldn't stop. And so I reckon that's what a... I can't think of the uh, proper word for it is. But this came down... And fell on my shoulders one day, and that was it. I was going to be a dancer. So that meant that yeah. everything that I had to do was channeled, you know. I told somebody the other day, my uh, older grandson, I never smoked, I never drank, and I never took drugs because I wanted to be the best dancer in the world. I knew that those three things would stop me doing that. And the, <laughs> I also told him, the other reason I was a very good little girl was because I didn't want to go to hell and burn up because mum sent us to a church school. So right, that
1: right. How's the Chiketi method different to other methods of dance? They're
0: all, they're all very um, similar. They have, um, they do, a lot of them have a mentor like that little old man there Chiketi, uh, Vaganova, um, um, the one in. Um, in Europe I can't remember the name of them the, all of them but he uh didn't know it but he was a genius he uh, was a, a dancer and he worked in um, the Bolshoi and the Kirov in R- Russia he's Italian and he was um, a character dancer so because he was a little man but he could jump and turn and doing all that and then when he stopped being a performer he started to be a teacher now, he had an instinct that you have to have balance and you have to not stress your your um, limbs or your joints too much, but just let them go in their natural place and then extend them a little bit. So um, he didn't make you twist your ankles or your neck or your hands or anything. He just took the body and trained it beautifully. And it was a lot of male things we learned Um, but the basic training was good for the body and I reckon because I learned Chiquiti all my life but then as a teenager I learned from everybody in Melbourne I had five different teachers I went to every day uh, every week Um, I just ameliorated it all in and that meant that when I was ready to go out into the world uh, as a dancer I wasn't a dance, I wasn't a classical ballet dancer, and I wasn't a Spanish dancer, and I wasn't a contemporary dancer, I was a fine body under which you could put anything you wanted to. And I'd, I, he used to teach ballerinas and premier danseurs in London when he finally ended up there. And he used to teach them his extremely good um, end of uh, top of the rank um, classes and things. So people in England took that and started moving it down to the small, so that you prepared to do his final work gently and came up to it. You didn't get it thrust at you straight away. And that's my uh, opinion of it. And I've always had that opinion. And then when I took over the society in Australia, and then I invented the International Society, I I tried to enthuse everybody else. Well, I didn't have to because they were all chatty people anyway. So. And the dancers last longer and they're, they're very, uh, oh, look at those two little girls, aren't they sweet? Um, uh, very well trained.
1: And the body's prepared, I guess, so you're less, less prone to injury yeah. or is well, injury still no, prevalent? Well, no, everybody's prone, yeah. <laughs>
0: everybody's prone to, England, uh, to injury. And when I had my first hip operation, everybody was saying, oh, it's because you're a dancer. I said, no, 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 um, my mother, had rickets as a child you do in, you do um, inherit arthritis because my grandmother died of rheumatoid arthritis and then my mother had rickets as a child but she was fine and when my mother was a grown woman in Australia she was about 65-70 uh, her bones didn't show up in an x-ray she had osteoporosis so badly her entire life but she never had to worry because she didn't know she had it and so and I had great bones um when I had my hip operation um they take a bit of your bone out and put some other stuff in it and afterwards this little man came up to me he said we want to put your bone in the bone bank I said what what he said well if we have People come in with breaking things. We, we we might need a bone graft, and and your bones are very good, so we want. I said, yes, go for it. Of course, yes, very good. And then when I came here, I had a new... I'm now in my 80s. Um, I had a bone scan, and now I have very thin bones. I said, no, 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 I've got very good bones. <laughs> I've got bones the doctor the said, boat, no, no. no. It, <laughs> I said, wouldn't you... I said, oh, well, that was 40 years ago. <laughs> so...
1: But in your early 80s, and you're still teaching dance, aren't you?
0: I don't teach dance. Oh, I do. I teach tap dancing. Yeah. (laughs) But um, what I do best is teach people of my own age to stay fit and to find their muscles again and then keep them going, you know. And so I was absolutely mortified when that that all had to close down. We just stopped, you know. And uh, I seized up. I tried to do it by myself, and I told every all of them, "Keep doing it." Here's all here's all the exercises. Read them and do them. But I I did. I had two weeks of not doing it, and then I had a week or t- two weeks of trying, and then I just gave up and did yeah. the. Well, there's the something
1: about that communal experience, yeah. isn't it? When you're all together and they're sort all of my friends, you know, yeah. and I'm
0: busy telling them what to do, and and they the, the people I'm teaching have they have now because I've been teaching there for about this exercise classes for about seven or eight years so people now know what i'm talking about but when new ladies come um oh and i have to explain things not in anatomical terms because i could never remember them but i say you know um this is your sitting down muscles or these are your going to the toilet muscles now pull them up inside you know we we do all that and there's no embarrassment and no, uh, it's a lot of laughing Yeah, great. that's <laughs> important so, oh it's great and I, I I literally say to myself you shouldn't be doing this you're showing off you're you're entertaining these people while you teach them and uh, but then they really love it so I don't don't worry about it <laughs> I think they do I hope they don't hear this
1: and entertaining is in your DNA
0: oh it is definitely yeah, yeah. because so, I was saying to somebody the other day uh, there's no point in doing it if you're not Um, in front of an audience. That's the only reason you do it, is because you want somebody to watch you. and So you are basically a show-off.
1: That's what teaching is, too.
0: (laughs) Of course it is. Yeah,
1: yeah. What other influences in your childhood, artistic influences? Did you go to the theatre as a family or were Ah, you in choirs? Well,
0: well, when um, mum... Oh, she was just amazing, my mother. She used to take us to the pantomimes every year because we lived in and We'd get on the train and go to Kingston and go to the Kingston Empire... And we would see a pantomime every Christmas, and the pantomimes were diverse. You know, there were Cinderella, um, Dick Whittington, and old ones with the principal boy and the dame of a male dressed up. And and the male was always the the uh, comedian that we we listened to every week on the radio, like George Formby or Arthur Askey. They were they kept us alive and laughing through the war with the radio serials, and then we'd go and see them on the stage. And so we would go, and we would go up to the gods, because that was where we could afford to go, and we loved them. And then at the end, when the wedding happened, everybody came out in a white satin suit, everybody, even the kids. And that was what I aspired to when I was five, six, and seven. Oh, I want one of those when i got my one and only starring role in anything goes at the Rich Book, i got the white satin dress at the end so did everybody else it was wonderful uh,
1: you had a brother chris or you have a brother chris no i had had sorry yeah. um what what sort of siblings were you were you competitive because he had a career in the arts as
0: well didn't yes, he yes well he He was amazing. We were very, uh, we grew up together and we were very, very close, but we fought like King Kelly has. We used to physically fight, you know, punch each other and things like that. And I was a liar and he was honest. So when we made mistakes, I would make up some story and Christopher would tell the truth and I'd get a smack because I lied. And then uh, it was like that. And then we came to Australia and we grew up. When we were teenagers, all that went away and we're the best of friends forever and best friends and i lost christopher six months after i lost my husband so those two big male friends in my life aren't here anymore um and i often used to say to christopher why are we like we are why why do we i want to make people laugh all the time and he he had a genius for making people laugh he just had to stand there and look at you and and you could laugh, um, and he made a um, wonderful, amazing career in, Ameri- in America, just doing just that, you know. And he, he, we would go to the movies, and one day we went to the Embassy, and we saw Irma Goes West, and it was um, Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis in their first big, you know, movie, and Jerry Lewis was um, twisting these oranges, you know, and we were laughing so much the people beside us had to move away we were laughing and laughing laughing lying on on the chairs laughing at this game we never you know we just laughed so much and then later in life my my beautiful brother wrote um a variety show for jerry lewis and and um did elvis presley's first television show and wrote the um, Andy Williams variety show for five years and discovered Sonny and Cher and he's uh, he's
1: and he worked for the iconic laughing series yeah, as well that's too. when yeah.
0: he we we're in Canada and he saw one of his sketches on television coming from the coast to Toronto and he said that's one of my sketches and then we waited till the end and <laughs> there was Digby Wolf's name and Digby Wolf and Chris had worked together in U61 and 62 in Australia. And then Digby got to um, Canada. He wasn't upset, but he said, oh, no, if they think that that's good enough to put on, I'll go and see if they want to use me. So he got over there and he got into that, that show. And the, the second year he was there, he got a, 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 it's an Emmy. Uh, the 12 writers right. on uh, Laugh-In got an Emmy. So he hadn't been there very long and he, he had an Emmy. <coughs> no. And so he continued to be a great producer and uh, comedy writer uh, for, in America. And he died last year, and, uh, in 2017, and um, they gave him one of those wonderful send-offs. And, and I wished I'd have gone, but I didn't. But I sent a little clip.
1: Right. <laughs> Were you folks happy about a career in the arts? Oh.
0: Mid m- m- marvelous. They were both yeah, very so my father was so proud of us, and uh, and my mother. Well, she was a bit of an actress herself. She had a beautiful speaking voice, and she did a lot of radio things. And she was once a lady kangaroo in a children's program. She had to get into these amazing trousers that were legs, and uh, no, she 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 did quite a few radio serials and things like that, and. John Cover was her agent and when she stopped, he took me on and uh, he was a lovely agent. So I don't, agents are funny. I had the same agent, not John, but for a very long time, about 30 years. And then that agency collapsed and uh, I had to find a new agent. It's really weird. And I had two or three and then finally like the one I have now. But the one I have now is not really interested in the theater so he's more interested in films and television which is where the money is, of course.
1: Well, a a big start of your career in Australia was with JC Williamson's, the firm. That was the first first one. So that's a a time before Whopper and NIDA and all of those training institutions. So JCW's was really your learning on the job, wasn't it?
0: Well, JC Williamson's was the pent-ultimate, no, the most important theatrical production company in Australia. They owned... Theatres in every capital city and in New Zealand, and they did. When I joined them, they were doing two or three major musicals every year. And when you got to the end of the one you were in, they would say to you, Do you want to be in the next one? And so, the girls, when we were, got into the first one, um, some of them had been two or three in a row. It was a way to earn a living, you know. But I was first, that was my first show at 16. There was another last who was 17 and another boy who was what was that 16. show that uh, came yeah it was a dancing show which was wonderful we had to dance our feet off and um and we went all around australia i don't think we went to perth but we went to brisbane adelaide uh, melbourne and sydney and then we went to new zealand and then came back
1: well touring must have been fun
0: it was when you're 16 i said to this somebody the other day. Uh, I had to go and find out where you buy toothpaste, because this it always been in the bathroom? And uh, <laughs> uh, and I said, I said to Mum, where do you buy it? She said, in the chemist. I said, oh, oh of course, chemist. Uh, and I'll get the soap there too. Yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, because when we I got into Cancan, my brother was eighteen. And I was sixteen, and my my father father and mother divorced when I was fourteen. So we'd lived with our mother for the next few years and I got into Can Can and went to Adelaide, Christopher got into the uh, army for his uh, national service and he had to go to north, uh, he went to somewhere. And in the same month my mother, who had brought us up totally solely from two till now, got deserted by both her children and there she was just herself. She was a working lady. She worked, uh, um, she was sort of a demonstrator in um, um, shops where she demonstrate cutting things or, you know. And uh, so she got herself together and went to Darwin. <sighs> she just went to Darwin. So then and, and found somebody to marry and had a wonderful life up there.
1: JCW's. You're working at a time when they're importing a lot of stars or oh, yes. names stars. from from yeah. the UK or the USA, even if they probably weren't stars. They no, might have been they, the second cover or something.
0: Th- they, were, uh, they were definitely either the understudy or the... Um, the, the next choice, you know. We never got the stars because the stars wouldn't come all this way and they have travel on the train, on the plane, on uh, a boat. So that's six weeks out of your life to get here.
1: Did that upset you all a bit that they were importing we people when you had people that could do We knew nothing it? else. Right.
0: That's, it always been like that. And these people, oh, they're from England, they must be good, you know. Yes. And uh, the little girl who was the ballet, the, the star of our show, she was a French-Canadian woman, a little tiny... Blonde woman, she was a singer, and the ballet lead was uh, American, an American gypsy called Eleanor Treba, and she'd done the show in um, America on Broadway. So she bought all the dances and told us what to do and everything. So and then played the thick the lead. So she was probably the ballet mistress in on Broadway, and now she was the star. But she was very clever and very good. And those she taught me no. I realised in her she had the same work ethic as I did because when we got to New Zealand we couldn't have time to go to dance classes so we would warm up each evening before the show and she was the leading lady over there and I was the only ballet dancer in the, in the um, 12 office who bothered to warm up and um, and so we, we danced together and we'd jump across the stage by that Uh, She was a good friend. The first time I went to New York, I stayed with her in her apartment.
1: You are working with the great Betty Pounder too, I (gasps) Oh God, yes. She
0: was the first person to give me my job. You know, she was ballet mistress when we had to do this amazing audition for Can Can. We had to do cartwheels and splits and all sorts of things. And uh, I had very long hair when I was auditioning. And when I got into the show, I went and had my hair cut. I had to a bob here, you know, and I had to go on the train to Albury, get off the train and then get onto the train that went to Melbourne because the gauges were different then. And when we got on the train to go to Melbourne, we had the sleeper and I was in the top bunk and Patty was in the bottom bunk. The man brought us the pot, a cup of tea and an arrowroot biscuit in the morning so we could get up. <laughs> and then we got on another train and went to Adelaide. And um, the first day we went into the theatre to rehearse, the show, Williamson's show, Peter Wagon, was playing at the Royal. And so we went and s- half of those dancers were coming into our show. So they were doing the show at night, rehearsing our show in the daytime. And we had to go there. And then when that show closed, we all went to Melbourne and opened the show in Melbourne. But I went into to the thing and, and I went in bright as spark and Betty said, oh! You've cut your hair. I said, yes. She said, no, no. That was one of the reasons we hired you because all the French girls in Can Can have long hair. So I said, don't worry. I had the hair made into a switch, which oh, was right. surprisingly clever of me. Yeah. And so I said, don't worry, I can do it. And I wore that switch all the way through the show. Oh, God, I thought I'd lost a job as soon as I would got it.
1: Oh, that was how- well, every job, you're being watched, I guess, and uh, you're serving an apprenticeship. And then no, you're given opportunities no. to no, 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 no. speaking that, roles no they
0: didn't care no no if you were a dancer you're a dancer
1: so you stayed a dancer yeah. right. oh no but you have got a speaking role in sentimental bloke
0: no, no 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 that's exactly when they asked us after camp finished, do you want to go into pajama game I said to Betty well will there be a role will I be able to say anything she said no you'd be one of the dancers and so I I didn't go I stopped where we were in Sydney and went um came to Sydney. And that's when my relationship with uh, Philip Street started, um, or was it? Well, with television, my brother was trying to write for television, and he had some friends who um, who were writing, and somebody was actually writing for a television show that was on. And he said, "Would I like to go on to the?" And do this, the comedian was leaving for four weeks, and would I like to take her place? So one of the reasons I'm still here is I never said, I can't do that. I just said, yes, I'll try. I kept doing it, things I'd never done before. I said, yes, I can do that. There's huge ego in there, really, isn't there? Yeah, I can do that. So I got. I went to rehearsal and uh, Sid said to me, um, here, here's your... I said, what do I do, Sid, because he was a scriptwriter. He said he gave me this big book of jokes. I was about 18 and I... Said much on television, obviously. and he said, Pick yourself out a few jokes out of that, and you'll be on for 10 minutes. And went, No, <laughs> I said, no. no, 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 I'm not doing jokes, I don't, I do funny things. that I... So I ended up singing <clears throat> The Pub with No Beer as Anna Russell would have done it. No, and I didn't know it was fun, I'd never done it before. I found this amazing outfit and stood beside the piano and said, well, the penis couldn't play for laughing and the audience were all laughing, so oh, that was good, <laughs> totally, totally out of it. And then I, I got into some sketches and then, and then after that, I, uh, the thing I did before I got sentimental bloke was I was understudy to Irma LaDuce. And she was one woman with 24 men in the show and she um, needed an understudy. Never having been an understudy before, I thought, well, that's good, I'm getting money and I'm dancing and working. And so um, that was fascinating, but it's a walking understudy. So that means you go in, you check that she's okay, and then you just sit in your dressing room. She said, would I stay till interval in case she didn't want to do the ballet in the last act? And so at interval, she'd say, I feel fine, I'm going to do the ballet so I could go home and maybe. Once or twice she didn't want to do the ballet, so I did it. And then one day I'm in class, six o'clock, stage manager comes in and says, she's off, in you come. So I did the whole show uh, maybe three times, which was exciting.
1: Uh, Was there much anxiety? I mean, that could be pretty stressful. It was a huge deal of responsibility carrying the show, I guess.
0: Well, it was because she sang, she danced, she cried, she laughed, and one lady. Uh, But uh, I knew what I was doing because I'd had all the understudy calls but when now it's different i know but when you're an understudy in those days you did it in your practice clothes on the stage with one work light and a pianist <clears throat> so when you go on you've got the whole stage lit up you've got your costume which you've never had on before to work in and you've got the whole band <laughs> and no microphone but then the reason i was her understudy is that i had a good loud voice you know so that that's what happened then um, and, and my, my father was thrilled so he got lots of people into the audience but the thing you, you, you've got to remember is when an understudy goes on there's an announcement made and the whole audience goes ah. Oh. <laughs> so you are going to put up with that but they get the best show they get a much better show if it's been on for a while they get the first class shiny show that they would have got if they been there on the first night because everybody's trying to make up for the fact that they haven't got their original star and they try to help you. And then they think, oh, I remember I did this before, you know. And so that's when I I was in charge of all those shows for so long uh, with the Adelaide Festival Trust. I, I had all that experience to know how to keep a show lovely and bright and shiny. And, and I did.
1: <laughs> Tell me about the Philip Street Theatre um, because you worked there for, for quite a while. Yes. Uh, was it a home of review or...? Yeah. It was
0: yeah. Review Theatre, yeah. and it was the first, the first theatre uh, in Sydney that had Australians as stars, and they didn't want people from overseas. They ended up getting Joyce Grenfell and things like that, but they had uh, people who were names in the radio serials, but we nobody knew what they looked like. We knew what they sounded like, and they made them stars, and so. Um, and all of them were Australian, and I I found that fascinating. But John McKellar and his co-workers ah oh, I can't remember their names, but um, he the three of them wrote uh, and and um, uh, did the uh, sketches and the lyrics and the music for the Philip Street Theatre, and it was a phenomenon because Australians were watching Australians and telling Australian stories and being funny about Australians um, and that's where John was just such a genius because we are very funny but he could see it, see through all that and so um, I would go and watch Philip Street and I, oh, I really wanted to be in oh, it was so funny and I'd go home and do all the sketches for mum and uh, then they said we've got an ask council tour and we're taking it on 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 uh, it threw a tour through the country, and we needed a little dancer to be in it. So I got a foot in by doing a dancer. It was a lovely role. I had white satin shoes, and it was a Chinese uh, thing, so I had a beautiful nice blue satin outfit. Was this
1: the willow pattern plate? The willow pattern plate.
0: Right. And I had two two-minute sparklers in my hands and I had the two-minute dance with these two sparklers in my hands, whizzing round the room, doing my pirouettes and poses and rushing off the stage and sticking them in a, a bucket of water. And this is all around uh, Osh- uh, New South Wales. And, and
1: you'd be billeted with families, yeah. I believe. Oh, yeah. that
0: was just the best. The best, the best, because I met the Australians that people used to call coves and diggers and beautiful women who worked in the in the uh, dairies and things like that and they they come and see the show and they just take you home and feed you and then stick you back on the bus the next day and many a night have I been sitting in the kitchen tables trying to stay awake because they're asking me all the questions uh, (laughs) (laughs) so it was just the most wonderful time I probably didn't think it was wonderful at the time because it was very hard work but in retrospect, just wonderful
1: You worked in a lot of children's theatre at Phillip Street too
0: yeah, I did two shows. I think the um, <laughs> first one was uh, Alice in Wonderland. And I can remember the costumer saying, would you like some um, ping pong teeth as March hair? I said, oh, no, no, my teeth have been plenty big enough for the March hair, <laughs> thank you very much. And then I did um, Ride on a Broomstick, which was just wonderful hysterical show. The little children's shows were so good. Well, children can be an unforgiving audience, can't they? They're yeah, all, but Bill Orr, who was in charge of Philip Street, he had that affinity with children. He was just beautiful. So he used to... Uh, those those um, Philip Street children's theatres were reviewed ecstatically, you know, by all the reviewers. They always loved them. Tell yeah. me about uh, Barley Charlie, which was Australia's first sitcom. It certainly was. Can you imagine that? I was there doing something or other um, and the agency said, there's this um, this um, situation comedy being done in Melbourne and they want you to go and be one of the stars. How anybody in Melbourne would have ever seen me, I don't know. If I really thought about it, I probably could. But anyway, I thought. You were with the girl though,
1: at Channel Nine. After that. After that. I I went down
0: down to I went down to Melbourne to do Bali Charlie, and there was me, um, Sheila Bradley, she was my sister, and Ted Heppel and Stuart, they were the two men, and the premise was that our father had left us a garage in the country in Melbourne and we had to go down and make a go of it so Sheila was trying to be boss and do everything and I was a madly wonderful ditzy girl who didn't have a clue and Ted and Stuart used to work in the in the garage and so we were trying to keep them employed so we we did 13 episodes we had a very famous guest star every week all those amazing actors have gone through hardly any women, but mostly the, the big star actors that were in Melbourne theatre at the time. And uh, they're all on my Facebook because I did work for them for a the week and I remember them very well. Um, not so many of them around now, but uh, oh, it was just wonderful. The, the premise was written by the two guys who wrote The Rag Trade. They came from England to do it but they went home after two weeks and Alan Hopgood took over the script. And um, we did 13 episodes. Some of them were very funny. Some of them were good. Some of them weren't so funny. And um, um, they said, we'd be going for about four weeks they said we're going to look at them all we want to come and have a look so we looked at them all and we died because the first episode was awful we were so stagey and acting, and overacting and yelling at each other we weren't television actors at all ted was larger than life. I was so stupid and, and Sheila was all bellowing. She said, please, 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 could you get rid of that one? We want to do another first episode. So said, we can't get rid of it, but we will do another first episode. So we did another first episode and they snuck that one in somewhere down the line six or seven, I think. And uh, But we, that all finished and then I was coming back to Sydney and Colin Bednell said, uh, would you like to stay and be the weather girl? So I said, yes. <laughs> and uh, and I was a weather girl for, I think, two years. Um, fascinating. I used to draw my own map right. and go to the weather bureau every day, get the map, come back and draw the isobars and the things, and then when it was raining, I'd draw rain, and when there was snowing, I'd <laughs> little suns, and snowing, I'd do this with a big black pencil. And I'll do this for you. I'm behind the, the map, and here's New- Victoria, and there's for me tasmania and then it would go into the um, camera and get swapped down so now tasmania was on your in, a different in place, the right yeah. no in the right place it yes, was yeah. and so it looked as though i was writing backwards with my left hand and <laughs> i used to get all these people saying how what long did you take you it take you to learn to do right backwards with your left hand so i didn't you know tell them that it was uh, not and then um you could have got a gig as mr squiggle no the best was this man rang me one day after the show and said remember you're drawing the rain the wrong way and i said oh oh uh uh, what doesn't rain fall down he said yes but you're drawing it the wrong way so i went to the weather bureau the next day and said this man said i'm drawing the rain wrong but which way does the rain fall and they said whichever way the wind is blowing so I said, "Oh, oh, of course." <laughs> so then I, I drew the rain falling the right way.
1: <laughs> You've worked in a series of creative roles, also as choreographer and director. And was the boyfriend one of the first times that you were no, an assistant director? No. no.
0: Oh well, to do with uh, anything to do with Noel Noel Tovey, I was his director because I he's a genius uh, at. Theatre and uh, just putting his stamp on things, and the minute he gets hold of it and he likes it, well, it's going to be a hit.
1: And you would have worked with Noel in uh, early JCW days? No, I missed you know?
0: him when we went to Adelaide to see to do to start rehearsals. He was in Paint your Wagon, but he didn't come into Can Can. He just went on with his own life, and then he went to England. I didn't see him till he came back to do the boyfriend, um, and I, I was assistant to him and then when he and Sandy Wilson went back to England they left that that show in my care but I also did the big the tango in the third act ballroom scene with I came on on um my partner's shoulders with the rose between my teeth and put me down we did this marvelous uh, tango choreographed by beautifully by Noel um with a whip and um The end was, he picked me up, swirled me around, threw me on my stomach and planted his heel in my back. And um, everybody said to you, uh, was saying to me, I think you're pregnant. I said, no, that's stupid, I'm not pregnant. And they said, we don't think you should be doing that. I said, just shut up and get on with it. And so I wasn't pregnant, but that man went and a smaller man came and he couldn't pick me up with my heavy dress and do the swirl on me. So I picked him up and swirled him around, threw him on the ground, put my foot in his back. It worked just as well. <laughs> so, but no, with uh, assistant directing with Noel, um, I was a, a small part of his brain in which I lived and I could organize things to get them done that he could invent and then I would get them done. And he knew that and we worked together for a very long time.
1: And, uh, you directed his one-man show. Yeah, one I did.
0: Man. I did that because um, he w- he was a very volatile person and he used to get upset during rehearsals. And I knew that if, if he got somebody who didn't understand him to direct him, however good a director they were, there would be a time when the director would tell him to do this and he wouldn't want to, or he would want to do something the director wouldn't, and then psh, the whole thing would blow up and then we'd have to go back to square one. So I asked him if he minded if I would help him put that show together. I didn't really he called me a director. And I suppose I was in a way because I, I kept it all together and put it all well. But um it's just such a monumental piece of theatre. Um, unbelievable because it's true and he was able to do it. Um, that it it's um one of the best pieces of theatre we've ever produced in this country, but nobody else could have done it. And we had, we did ask, we did, you know, as he was getting older and he was hurt his leg and got less and less. I said, well, you know, can we give it to somebody else? And he said, yes, let's think about that, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Of course they could, but it wouldn't be the same as now. Fortunately, it's on video. It's, it's actually on film, so we can well. always watch it. I've never seen it, but...
1: You spoke earlier about working with the Adelaide uh, Festival Theatre Trust as a a caretaker director with a lot of big musicals. Yeah. um, Oliver and The Sound of Music and Guys and Dolls and Sugar Babies, 42nd Street. Well,
0: Sugar Babies was um, Elizabethan Theatre Trust. Right. And then 42nd Street was Helen Montague. The the last one I did was Guys and Dolls. That's when I walked back, was off the stage and disappeared in a rehearsal. (laughs) I was helping Nancy with her her tool take back your neck, you know. And uh, I, I said, just do that again, and I stepped backwards into the pit, I felt.
1: Oh, did you, were you okay?
0: Well, I I had combs in my hair, and this comb pierced a, a little uh, vein here. So oodles of blood was rushing out, but the production manager ran down and put his hand on it and stayed with me all the way till I was in the hospital. And then the man came to fix it and he took his hand off. And uh, amazingly so, I didn't break anything, I didn't hurt anything. And two days later I could go back to work. But I think that was the beginning of um, the injury to my hip where I had to have a hip operation, maybe 10, 12, 14 years later. And then, then I had to have the other. So I've had three hip replacements and a knee uh, replacement. Um, but I'm still on my feet. Only just.
1: <laughs> With those big shows, are you watching them every night to Yes, I to did take most notes? nights. Yeah.
0: Um, i tell you what, let's do Sound of Music. I was there all the way through the rehearsals for the kids.
1: Uh, and casting too, I guess.
0: Greg Crease, yes. Greg Crease yeah. and I looked after the kids. Because you had to have 14. And you had to do two groups. So we got them all ready and then we took them to the other company uh, the grown up company and put them all in and you know those little kids, who's going to be on opening who are we better than the other ones so I kept changing the the, the numbers you know because ch- what happened, uh, two or three there's that um, Sound of Music and Oliver, what happens and it happened every time in each capital city, one group takes off and you can't Stop it! So I would take one out of that, go and put that one there. And but there's always someone in one of the one of the groups that is the star, and they all go with you know they promote them. So uh, that's in the book. It's very interesting about children and the children on the stage are just so the the right ones are mind bogglingly brilliant because. They just have to do it. It's like me, I had to do it, so I did. And and they have to do it, even when they're 10 and 9. And, um, and oh, it's just amazing. You you probably know that, as you do. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's
1: extraordinary. You see some, some yeah. young people who are sort of have a, the, on their shoulders the, the mind of a 50-year-old. <laughs> but not necessarily
0: no, precocious. Just, no. I was saying to somebody the other day, oh, it's this man I know whose son is a very good singer. And he showed me a DVD and I said, why isn't he now doing that? He's doing something different. And he said, I don't know. I said, well, he obviously hasn't got the need. If you don't have the need, you don't do it. You do something else. But the need won't be denied. You just have to keep on doing it. Even if you fail dismally all the time, you still keep doing it. Isn't it awful? Yeah.
1: A story I loved in the book was about the great Broadway impresario David Merrick. <laughs> yes. Would you share that with us?
0: Yes. Um, we were doing 42nd Street and uh, Mark was the director... Of Mark co- Bramble? Yeah, co-author, actually. And so he was um, doing it. And we'd been running for a little while and he felt that he was going... OK, he was going back to America. But he went to see the STC version of Hamlet with Richard Barrett. He's good friends with Richard Barrett. So he said to me... This before we, he went he said David Merrick's in the theatre tonight he's not allowed to go backstage so I said uh, what? he said no he's not allowed to go backstage I said uh, you mean I have to stop David Merrick going backstage in a production that uh, a sign outside says David Merrick's production of 42nd Street and he said yes that's right and then he went he and his manager went and I rang up at interval. No, he rang me at interval and he said, I'm sorry, yes, I, I, I'm sorry. Okay, we're coming coming back now, so don't worry. Thank God for that. So they came and they arrived and we went into the stalls and David Merrick had had a serious um, stroke and he was speaking around gutturally and he had limping and he was there with his secretary, um, lovely Asian lady. And... Um, We went down in front of the stage, and as all the people were going out, we were sort of herding um, David Merrick to the back stalls where um, Mark wanted to talk to him. Mark had been uh, apprenticed to David Merrick when he first started in the theatre, so he knew and loved him, and um, apparently David Merrick's cheque for the royalties in London had bounced. And in America, if you write a cheque that bounces, it's illegal and you can be put in jail for doing that. And uh, Mark did not want, he wanted his money, but he didn't want to put David Merrick in jail. So we uh, shift them back to the back. The two of them sitting there and me and Mark and um, his manager talking to them. And there was great love and, um, oh, Merrick, don't you like that. And then um, Mark said, now about this money, and David Merrick said money <laughs> and then um, Mark explained that his check had bounced now apparently I suppose you want to know this you can cut it out if you don't like it David Merrick when he had his stroke his uh, recently divorced wife had had him declared incompetent and had taken over uh, running of the business and um, some Uh, documents had been going into his office, uh, William Morris' office, and being put into his um, pigeonhole, and the secretary had been taking them out and sending them to where they should go, and she opened this letter and read it and read it, and and she said, oh, goodness. She said, "Um, there's some uh, some letters here for Mr Merrick. So he said, the person she asked, he said, well, take them to Mr Merrick. He needs to read them. So she found Mr Merrick and gave him these letters because she knew that uh, he'd lost control of his company. And so that's the first time he knew. And so he immediately took back, because uh, he wasn't incompetent, He got, took back his power of attorney and in charge. And so now, um, um, now that had been explained to Mark, he was very relieved and everything. And and um, he said, no, I want my money. and. Uh, I'm not telling any secrets that people didn't know, but because he had worked with him for five years, um, Mark knew that David Merrick, whenever he went overseas, always had massive amount of money on his person in a money belt around his body. And I, uh, my husband had another friend who was like that. It was something to do with older, rich American people. They always wanted the money, you know, the actual cash. So um, David said... Uh, Sorry, David Merrick said to Mark look I'll, I'll write you a cheque and Mark knowing what he knows said no I want the money that you've got please so David Merrick said alright so David Merrick Mark um, and the secretary went in a cab to the hotel where David Merrick was staying and William came with me before all that happened he was David Merrick was allowed to go and see the company and they said he said thank you I love it and all that then this happened and um, so I got in my four-wheel drive and drove my car to the hotel and William came with me and then we went up to this little not sumptuous at all just an ordinary double room in the in the hotel and David Merrick sitting at the desk signing um, traveller's checks And uh, William is counting one, two, three, all this money and putting them in little hundred dollar, hundred dollar piles. And then um, Mark said, give them to Rabina; she'll count them as well. (laughs) So there we are, there's the best man, the person I've wanted to work for my entire life, uh, a poor, you know, old, tired gentleman, very having to write his uh, signature very slowly because he didn't have quite enough money in his money belt. And uh, finally it was all over and all the money was put into Mark's uh, briefcase and we got my car and I drove everybody back to the Siebel Hotel. We got into the bar and uh, had a bottle of champagne and uh, um, that was the most uh, weird experience of my life. (laughs) Still, I think.
1: Well, a life in the theatre throws up Occasional,
0: yeah, I suppose it does. Wacky yeah.
1: Experiences like that, which yeah. fantastic. Yeah, now, um, the great Mary Hardy was a good mate of
0: yours, yes, but beautiful woman. Through this uh, conversation, she, that's wrong. I wasn't, she wasn't a beautiful woman, she was a nut, <laughs> but lovely. Yeah. she was really lovely. Did you work with her often? No, I didn't work with her at all, actually, because I was in Melbourne doing Weather a Girl and um television, you know, um, IMT and she was on Channel 7 and she was a really important person I met her when she was in Sydney doing a Phillip Street show and she loved my husband uh, because she was John McKellar's brother and she called Clive Filth and she was in a show with various things and she she, she was a very good review uh, performer but she didn't do much work in, in Sydney and she did that show and Clive and John and Mary were really good friends, you see. So when I went to Melbourne, um, she befriended me. And I was living by myself in Melbourne. But at the weekend, um, and when I wasn't working, I was a bit mean, you know. I had a couple of boyfriends and and other girlfriends, but um, I was a bit lonely. And so Mary and her husband, Ian, would ring me up and say... We're going to the uh, the Dandenongs, so I'd, oh, I love that. So we'd go get the car, they'd pick me up. We'd go in the Dandenongs, we'd go to Kenlock and have lunch in the beautiful ballroom in front of the far uh, roaring fire, and then we'd just go, and then they'd take me home. We'd go and have a copious cups of tea, and then I'd be put back. So they looked after me, and she was my really best friend. When I was in New York, she she called me and said. Uh, Mm. I'm going to be in New York next week, can you come up? So I could, Toronto, we had wonderful time in there. And so she was my very, very good friend. And when I came home from Canada, she was uh, a big, big star on television and radio. And then she slowly, very slowly, began to lose the plot. And um, I go uh, moved back to Sydney and then I would be... Um, there in the middle of the night she'd be ringing up and talking blah uh, blah you know nothing and I knew that she wasn't very well so I'd go down and check things out and then she had a very good doctor and she told us eventually that she was oh no before that before she really got to that stage um, I took Clive to Hong Kong with me when we went with Chicago and so Mary came to Sydney and looked after my two children for um for a fortnight and so with me with my children with Clive she was under control when she wasn't with us or with ordinary people uh normal people um she was out of control and she knew that so when she was out of control she'd go and see the doctor and he'd put her into hospital and then she would ring me and say uh I'm fine hello how are you going I really can't stand being in hospital." Um, but I know I'm going to stay here. If I go out, I know I'll go off the, off the rails again. So, um, finally, she got out of hospital, and for six months she was very much under control, and she was lovely. And I said, I said, come and live in Sydney. No, no, my life's here in Melbourne. Um, so, after that six months, she lay in the bathtub and pulled the trigger on her yeah. shot and uh, my, my, uh, <laughs> uh, my thoughts on that is that she intended to die. There was no way she was calling out for help. She intended to die. And it was her life. It is your life. And if you can't stand it, well, then that's your option. You, you end it.
1: There's a great tragedy uh, it was. Because she was a, a extraordinary talent right, with the stage, you know, playing yeah. Agnes Gooch in that she production suffered. of Mame, and, yeah. and then the Penthouse Club, as you say, and, and radio. And I only bring her up today just because, you know, this is a chance in these conversations where we can celebrate those great performers who are my, no longer here.
0: My favourite um story about Mary is we went, uh, when, one of those times, Um, She said, I'm going to be in New York and I've got tickets for Golden Boys. So I came up. With Sammy Davis. Yeah. Yeah. Came up for the weekend. and She was already in the theatre and I snuck in beside her. I said, we're looking at the Broadway. We're on Broadway. She said, is that Sammy Davis Jr down there? And so she was wonderful. And then we talked and talked and talked and talked. And she had Dick Gregory's autobiography. uh, He'd just written this autobiography. He's a black... um, comedian in America and the, the autobiography was called N-I-G-G-E-R in big black letters on the front of the book and she had it with her and she used to wear hold it in front of her with the letters out and she said this night we're, we're going to, to Harlem to see him do his uh, act and so I said okay and so we went to Harlem and we went into this beautiful amazing club and we were the only two white people in the room and Father Earl Hines was playing the first part and then Dick Gregory came out and did his act and he was funny, he was very dirty and, and ugly and but very, very funny. And so I'm getting ready to go home and Mary said, "Wait a minute. I'd like to go in and see Mr Rick Gregory, please. I said, what? She said, uh, I, I'm from Australia and I'm a comedian and I'd like him to talk to me about comedy. So the waiter went, okay. And he went back and said, he said, come in so she went in she said, you coming? no I'm not coming <laughs> so she went in and I was sitting there uh, it was the longest 5, six, ten minutes I've ever been but all by myself nothing to do anyway she came out beautiful smile on her face and he'd signed the big you know thing we walked home with this <laughs> in front of her and uh, uh, i never forget that um, and then she said, I, I said, I'm going to the hotel. Oh, I should tell you that too. I'm going to my hotel. I was staying at the Taft. And she said, well, I'm going to this party with the people from London who are here uh, uh, with a play about um, Marie Marat de Sade. And I said, well, I'm not coming. She said, okay. She said, they're all mad, you know. And I said, yes, I think that's the point of the play. They're all lunatics. And they're... So she went off to that and I went to the Taft Hotel and I walked into the foyer, and it's full of shriners. Do you know what shriners are? Uh,
1: they're in Bye Bye Birdie. I know that. Now
0: those people with red <laughs> feathers with little it's, black tassels. And it's, it's a, like a Lions Club it's, or a Rotary yeah, or something it's, it's like a, that. A, a, um, Yeah, it is. It's its uh, I oh, I can't even think of it. It is like a Lions Club. It's. Um, uh, but they, they had their annual, club meeting in my hotel, which was one of the biggest uh, middle class hotels in. Uh, in New York. And the, the place was full of them, absolutely full of them. They're all got the funny little things and they're all laughing and cheering. I get in, the, get in the lift and walk at the back. And a lot of shriners got in, I pressed the buttons and I'm standing at the back there and this lady beside me says, you're a Rabinabear aren't you? Yes, are you here to see your brother? How is he? How are the children? <laughs> she went to the whole thing about my life, and and I said, "Oh, you're from Australia? Yes, of course we are." And then my lift door, uh, you know, was my floor, and I walked out. I was in New York, and I'd only been there once before and in you my were life. And I was standing behind this woman who knew all about me. So you know, fame is a fleeting thing, isn't it? <laughs> she only knew me because being a weather girl, but nothing.
1: Oh, not even Madge! No,
0: Madge oh. wasn't happened until right. then.
1: Fantastic! No,
0: but that's that's in the book. <laughs> well, there's a,
1: a, a huge number of extraordinary stories in the book. I had a ball reading it. Um, Good. It's still available. People can still uh, obtain it. Yes, book, can I say it? Yeah. if
0: you want it, you look up Rabina uh, web page, Rabina and uh, this thing comes up, and you just press shop. And then there's another thing that comes up, and um, you just buy it, and it's twenty five dollars, and then it costs about eight or nine dollars to send it. And you, I get that, and then I put the book in, you know, in the special bag and send it to you. If you want me to, I'll sign it. You know.
1: Yeah, it was very, very easy to order, and I'll, I'll put those details in the the uh, biography for this episode. Yes, Rabina, it's been absolutely delightful. Thank you for a lovely lunch and a cup of tea and an extraordinary chat.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity of talking about myself, which I love doing. <laughs> <laughs> I think everybody, you know, most people
1: like talking about themselves, but um, it's been great to share your story today.
0: Thank you so much. I loved it.
1: If you'd like to learn more of Rabina's fascinating life, I suggest you buy the autobiography my life you're soaking in it is available from www.rabinabeard.com it's full of fascinating insights into this wonderful business we call show thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening today a new episode of the stages podcast is released every thursday i know that many of you have been recommending it to uh, your colleagues and family and friends thanks very much until next time, I'm Peter Ries, you've been listening to my conversation with Rabina Beard on stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, I'll catch you next time.